0: Don't know about you, but uh, one of my favourite types of movie is a movie that has some form of court scene in it. You know, a few good men, or or the like, that type of movie. And I don't know whether it's I wanted to be a lawyer at some point in time, but I just like the toing and froing of arguments, of uh, rebuttals, of uh, trying to discover what facts are, trying to. Uh, see what the the precedents of a particular situation are that apply to another situation and they're quite compelling for me I don't know if it's compelling for you but it's compelling for me the the whole well who's going to win the case Uh, who's guilty who's not guilty what's going to be the outcome and it's quite captivating as I sit and and watch those things and I think this morning as we we go to John chapter 7 it's very much like that it's a It's a court scene. It's a continuation of of John chapter 5. If if you read um, John chapter 5, verse 18, we read these words. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Just previous to that, Jesus had healed a man by the pool of Bethsaida. It was one of the sign gifts in the the Gospel of John, and and Jesus had healed this man... He healed him on the Sabbath. And then he continued to say, Not only have I healed him on the Sabbath, but I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And my my Father is working in me until now. He was equating himself to be God. So then from chapter 5 onwards. We have this desire by the Jewish leaders, by the authorities, by the, the Pharisees and Sadducees to kill him. Two reasons. He broke the Sabbath according to their traditions. And secondly, he equated himself to be God. And as you read through um, the, the extra part of John chapter 5, you, you will see what Jesus does. He, he actually goes into trial mode. He goes into a mode where he starts explaining, well, actually, my authority comes from above. And he draws in witnesses. At the end of John chapter 5, from verse 30 to 47, you see multiple witnesses to the truth of who Jesus is. Multiple witnesses. You see John the Baptist as a witness. You see Jesus himself in his very works witness to who he is. You see God the Father as his witness. And finally you see scripture. All of scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, draw witness to the fact that this is who he is. And then we move to to John chapter 7 this morning. So please open your Bibles to, to John chapter 7. And we return to this whole courtroom type scene in many ways. Some time has passed since last time Jesus was in Jerusalem. And we'll see in John chapter 7 and John chapter 8, a return to Jerusalem during one of the major feasts of the year. And this particular point in time is um, six months or so before Jesus' final Passover. The time when he'll be crucified. So John chapter 7, let's read together. We'll read the first nine verses. After this, this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the Jews' feast of the booze was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judah, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, sow yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. So we have this, this picture six months before Jesus' final Passover six months before his time actually does come for him to be glorified through the way of the cross and we have this dialogue you see Jesus is not making himself visible amongst the, the Judean countryside why? because his time had not yet come and, but the Jews were also seeking to kill him as we read in John chapter 5 Since John chapter 5 and and John chapter 7, Jesus has stayed well away from the temple. He stayed well away from Jerusalem. Because his time had not yet come. And then we have this this dialogue with his his physical brothers. And I I don't understand their reasoning. They say to Jesus, hey, go up to the feast. Show them who you are, yet they don't believe in him try to prompt them to say oh well, well, you think you're this miracle worker or you think you're, the, you're this healer or maybe you think you're even the Christ, go up and show yourself and they try and force them to go up come up with us come up with us to the feast <coughs> prove the claim that you have to Messiahship yet they're in unbelief They unbelief. And the feast they were asking for him to go up to was the Feast of Booths. What do you know about the Feast of Booths? Well, I didn't know a lot about the Feast of Booths until the start of this week. I started looking through the, the history of, of the, the nation. You see, the Jewish nation celebrated seven feasts throughout the year. And this feast is known by uh, three different names it's either called the feast of booze the feast of tabernacles or the feast of in gathering if you turn with me to Exodus chapter 23 you'll you read about the institution of this particular feast and the importance of it Exodus 23:14 uh, tells us this three times in a year you must make a pilgrim uh, feast to me you are to observe the feast of unleavened bread, i.e., Passover. Seven days you must eat bread made without yeast, as I have commanded you, at the appointed time of the month of Habib, for at that time you came out of Egypt. No one may appear before me empty handed. You are also to observe the feast of harvest, the first fruits of your labours that you have sown in the field and the Feast of Ingathering or the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booze at the end of the year when you have gathered in your harvest out of the field all three times in the year all your males will appear before the Lord God so that's the basis of the Feast of Booze and and why it was called a pilgrimage feast so this is what is happening in Jerusalem at this time the, this feast was about to take place you can further read about the requirements of this feast if you have any interest in it in Leviticus chapter 23 have a look through there it's quite fascinating what is required in each day of the feast there is burnt offerings there is grain offerings there is sin offerings uh, a myriad of other types of things that are required each day and as each day of the feast goes on uh there's a reduction in the type of uh, sacrifice that is required. You know, and this feast was considered the greatest of the feasts, the greatest of the pilgrimage feasts by the people. It was um, really to celebrate uh, the harvest, the bringing in, the gathering of, of foods, particularly grapes and olives. This feast was some six months after the Passover. And uh, it was a great time of celebration. I remember when Jules and I were in in Israel a few years ago now. We weren't there for the Feast of Booze, but we were there for uh, Purim. And it's a different type of feast. But I think the very similar thing happens. The joy that was shown in the celebration was immense. I don't think I'd ever been around a people so joyous in their celebration. The whole day was set aside to read through the book of Esther to make it a bit of a melodrama, and it was really fascinating because they'd read through this uh, the this, this, this story of Esther and, and uh, <laughs> they'd have, like a pantomime, they'd have rattles and every time Haman's name was mentioned they'd boo and hiss and, and uh, every time Mordecai's na- name was mentioned they'd cheer and carry on but it was just a, a wonderful, joyous feast and I imagine this is what booths would be about they're celebrating the fact that the harvest has come in they're celebrating the fact that God has provided the harvest, see any good farmer knows that it's God who provides the rain any good farmer knows it's God who provides the food it was a seven day affair And at the conclusion, there was a special Sabbath. And the people would dwell in tents or booths, they would call booths, or tabernacles, a tent. Tabernacle is just another word for tent. And uh, they would do that to represent their coming out of Egypt and their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And other things have been added to this feast, and I just want to give you this background because I think this is significant in light of what we're going to read in, in chapter 7 and 8 of John because chapter 7 and 8 of John is all around this feast of ingathering this is the celebration time of this feast and and Jesus does two very significant things during this feast which line up with what they're celebrating firstly uh, they would light a giant uh, you know the seven pronged candlestick you sing of, Sea of Jerusalem? It's called a menorah. They would light this thing in the temple courtyard. That would be one of the, the customs of the feast. There'd be all night dancing to flutes by torchlight. There would be a dawn. In the dawn, there'd be um, processions ending with, with the pouring out of water and wine at a bronze altar. We call that libations of water and wine at a bronze altar. This was part of the process. you read that in Leviticus. Uh, they'd pray for rain and they'd pray for the resurrection of the dead, the hope of the resurrection. Uh, the pe- priests would march around the altar and uh, the people carrying fruit uh, waving palm branches. So it's just a, it was a celebration of the abundance of what God had given them. So when you look at that particular feast there are two major themes associated with it. Two major themes. Water and light. They're they're the the key things that are, are related to the feast of booze. Water and light. And this feast is also very much associated with the fact of the Jewish hope that a Davidic Messiah would come. Very much in that mindset. And you'll see as we unfold chapter 7 and chapter 8, Jesus grants rivers of living water. And he declares, I am the light of the world he is the Davidic fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles so this is the the situation and we have this dialogue with his brothers as we said before and and they're unbelieving brothers but he's clearly stating I'm not going to the feast because my time has not yet come sounds very similar to the miracle in Cana right right back in chapter 2 Jesus' mother came to him and says, hey, they've run out of wine. She says, woman, what does that got to do with me? My time has not yet come. My hour has not yet come, actually, is what he said. Here he says, my time has not yet come. Jesus ignores their requests. Why? Because Jesus is on God's timetable. He's on God's timetable God will be the one who will determine the hour that he will be glorified not as brothers it is God and God alone Jesus would only be directed by his father's timing not by pressure applied from his earthly unbelieving brothers. As I consider Jesus' response to the pressure that his brothers were applying to him, I think there are some wonderful lessons that we can learn from Jesus' response here. Especially for those of us in this room that call ourselves followers of Christ there are some really wonderful things to consider you see Jesus' only concern here was to do the will of his father his only concern was to do the will of his father he knew that God's plan for him was the correct plan and that God's plan for him was the right plan you're sure you see in Jesus a response, so sort of some elements of divine foreknowledge, you get that. Okay, he is the divine Son of God, so he's probably going to see things a little differently to you and I. But the principle remains. As followers of Jesus, are we more concerned about the crowd's response to our actions, or does our faith and trust in Christ dictate and guide our actions? I'll say that once more as followers of Jesus are we more concerned about the crowd's response to our actions i.e. the unbelieving brothers who are trying to force us into do something or does our faith and trust in Christ and his plan for our lives dictate and guide our actions that's something as a follower of Christ we need to be consistently in our forefront of our mind Are we following his plan? Examples of this. If you're looking for a a husband or wife. See, the principle from God's word is don't be unequally yoked. That's the principle from God's word. And yet we knowingly entertain, sometimes follow the world and form a relationship with someone who does not believe in Christ. That's been pressured by the society around about us. It's actually saying to God, I'm not sure about your plan. I'm not sure if I want to wait. You see, the problem there is that you give your heart to this person, it becomes very difficult. This principle also applies in business relationships, doesn't it not? To be unequally yoked in a business relationship. You see, as a Christian, you will find that if you're in a business relationship, that this partnership with unbelievers, that you may be forced to compromise in some areas of your business practice. You may be forced to, to compromise on some issues of ethics the way you deal with people and customers and and the like because I'm hopeful that as a believer and as a follower of Christ your view of business, of money of, of all those things is different We see it financially. We see the pressure of the world come upon us financially, where the, the world just places a different view on spending and receiving of material well-being. One of the curses of our age is the credit card, because it says, <laughs> "Buy now, pay later." Biblical principle is always be a wise steward of money. Oh, no one anything. So the pressure of of spending and the pressure of ethical dilemmas inside your workplace. So the challenge here is as a follower of Christ, are you guided by his ways? His plans and his purposes? Or are you swayed by the word of the world and the culture around about you? Jesus had enormous pressure from his brothers to do something he knew was contrary to God's plan. Each one of us are the same. We know things that are put before us each day Many things are contrary to God's plan and yet we compromise. But you know what? God's grace is amazing. He uses broken vessels, you and I, to honor him and serve out his purposes. Get before His throne of grace today, if you've you're strolling with following his plan and say Lord show me, teach me through your word how to follow you wholeheartedly and not to be anxious about the consequences but to trust alright let's pick up chapter 7 the no, glasses. verse 10 But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Now, is this a major U-turn by Jesus? No. No. He's going up privately. He's not uh, touting to the wishes of his brothers, but he's secretly going up to Jerusalem. And see, the crowds in Jerusalem at this time would be a a multiple crowd. There would be uh, Jews from Judea, there'd be Jews from Galilee, and there'd be the, the Spora Jews, those that are spread around the world would be coming back for this pilgrimage feast. But once again, you see Jesus divides opinion. Even amongst this crowd, there's murmurings about him. Uh, The the crowd said, look, aren't aren't the Jews looking for him? Meaning the Pharisees and and Sadducees and the Jewish leaders. Aren't they looking for him? They obviously remembered a little bit earlier, back to the the, the Paul of Bethsaida situation where they were seeking to kill Jesus. And uh, then we have this divided opinion. Some said, oh, he's a good man. And others say, no, he is leading the people astray. Now, leading the people astray was a pretty serious accusation because if you read back in the law, uh, to lead someone astray was to be considered a false prophet. And the punishment for false prophet was stoning by death. So we have, a, we have a further charge being added to Jesus, right? So from John chapter 5, we have the two charges. Hey, you're breaking the Sabbath, and you're equating yourself to be God. And now the people are saying, oh, actually, he's also a bit of a, a false prophet. He's also, he's also somebody who's leading the people astray. So let's continue to read. Verse 14, about the middle of the feast, so this is halfway through the feast, about the middle of the feast, uh, three or four days into it, Jesus went into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but uh, but his who sent me. Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marveled at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on a Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well. Do not judge by appearances but judge with right judgment so we have this this scene Jesus now goes to the temple court to the outer court and he he teaches there are multiple courts in the outer court of the temple we're not sure what court uh, Jesus was teaching in I can only assume he wasn't teaching in the Gentile court Okay, because the Jews are there and they tend to separate themselves and uh, we have this response of the crowd they, they marvel at him they marvel and, and they can't understand this guy has no rabbi training he has no study at all <laughs> they didn't know that in the beginning was the word the word was with God, the word was God They didn't know he was the very essence of the eternal word. But they looked at him and said, oh, how can he be so wise? He he hasn't studied. But you see, even in this affirmation of Jesus, there's a bit of a knife going on here. Because what they're really implying is if someone got up and and talked without any sort of uh, reference to a rabbi or something, what, what would happen is they say, well, you're just arrogant. You've got no basis to talk. You're in complete arrogance because all you're doing is spouting your own stuff. That's the inference that's going on here. Because... Jewish rabbis would always substantiate their arguments by arguing from some form of precedent, from a, some form of earlier rabbinic judgment. You know, very much like our court laws. When we go to court, you, you watch these trials, and, and people will, will argue from previous points of law, from previous cases that have been solved or unsolved or whatever it might be, and they'll argue from a... That's what you call arguing from a Precedent. Therefore, Jesus not citing um, any previous rabbis would indicate a, a certain arrogance in him, uh, independence of spirit and danger of, of drifting from the way of tradition. So um, Jesus is really sensitive to this charge, and in that next verse, he bases his authority on God. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking of my own authority. You see, this is a shift and this would have upset these fellows because he's saying, "My, I have direct revelation from God. That's my authority. That's greater than Moses even. And you guys follow Moses to the letter of the law, but but my authority is greater than that of Moses because it's directly from the one who has sent me. And then he challenges their whole concept of authority by saying, I think your authority is self-glorifying and self-serving. Therefore, it is false authority. So he starts to incite a little bit further the the issues that that are going on here. You see, you think about the Old Testament, earlier prophets, what could they say their authority was from? What did, what did they proclaim? Thus said the Lord, right? Earlier prophets, thus said the Lord. But Jesus' words and deeds are so much at one with the Father's, not only because of the unqualified obedience that he shows toward his Father, but because he does everything the Father does. Come with me back to John chapter 5 in the initial trial if you like John chapter 5 verse 19 after they accuse him of Sabbath breaking and and wanting to kill him because he was claiming to be equal with God this is his first part of his testimony about his authority truly truly remember we've talked about truly truly whenever Jesus says that it's an incredibly emphatic statement I'm telling you and I'm telling you again The son can do nothing of his own accord but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. He's reaffirming this very statement in these verses in John chapter 7. I, and my father, are one. I'm only doing the things that God is doing. So that's his authority. He says... I can legitimately claim this and I can proclaim these remarks. I am authoritative because I am telling you the truth. Verse 18. And then Jesus, after he's dealt with the authority issue, wants to deal with another issue here and this is in verse 19 through 23. And what he does here is he starts criticizing those around about him he says I'm gonna I'm gonna just talk to you about the law I'm gonna say that you know Jesus has given you the law but none of you keep it not one none of you keep it and by the way you're seeking to kill me on what basis do you seek to kill me have I done anything to, 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 to be killed? What's their response? Jesus, you're delusional. You have a demon. You, you, you make no sense. And who's seeking to kill you? That's their response. You see, Jesus continues responding to them and he, he takes a point of law. And he refers back to the sign done in, in John chapter 5, the healing of a man by the pool of Bethsaida, right? He refers back to that. And he says, I just have a question for you. You practice circumcision every day of the week because you know the Lord tells you to circumcise on the eighth day. So, what happens if that eighth day falls on the Sabbath? What happens? You circumcise. That's what he tells them. That's what you do. You circumcise. And what he does, he uses a classic rabbinic technique. He he argues from the lesser to the greater. You'll see this right through John's Gospel. You'll see it through all through the synoptics. You'll argue from the lesser to the greater. And his basic argument is this okay, if you circumcise on the Sabbath, therefore. You've, you've made a precedent there and you said that's okay and Jesus doesn't refute that. He says, yeah, it is okay. But if that's okay, then what I have done is also okay. I've healed a whole man. I've healed a whole man on the Sabbath and that's okay based on your argument from lesser to greater and the very fact that a precedent has been made to accommodate God's law. Because of the precedent set on the circumcision issue, the Jews had established a a hierarchy of precedents amongst the detailed prescription of the Mosaic Code. Why? In order to keep the law. So too, surely this applies to the whole man as well. And this is the argument Jesus says, unless lesser to greater. So why are you seeking to kill me? Why? And it's really interesting, actually, if you go through some writings of rabbis by about 120 AD, you will see in their writings, they'll make the very same comment that Jesus makes. That, uh, and they say it in terms of, well, circumcision is just one member of 280 members of the body. So if we heal all 280 members on the Sabbath, what's the issue? They actually come back to to Jesus' thinking on this issue, the argument from lesser to greater. And then Jesus concludes this teaching here a couple of things. He says, I command you not to judge and not to judge incorrectly, and not to judge on appearances. You're judging on appearances. You have no understanding of the facts before you. I've healed because that's the Father's will for me to heal. He is the one who sent me. And really, my healing is no different to what you've done with circumcision. And he's really saying, I have authority to speak, I have authority to heal, and I'm not delusional. So why are you seeking to kill me? Let's read the next little bit. And we'll squeeze this in for today. Verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is this not the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ but we know where this man comes from and when the Christ appears no one will know where he comes from so Jesus proclaimed put a circle around that so Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple you know me and you know where I came from but I have not come on my own accord he who sent me is true and him you do not know I know him for I came from him, and he sent me. So they seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, "When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done?" We now have a different group of people. We've got the Druze of Jerusalem weighing into this argument. They have a completely different perspective from the crowd in the previous verses they firstly know that the Jewish establishment are wanting to kill him secondly they are surprised that the authorities haven't come and grabbed them out of the temple to do so and that raises a question in their mind oh well perhaps if he's free to teach well and there's a lack of action from these authorities well maybe he is the Christ but then they quickly disregard that possibility because they know he's a Galilean. And then they showed that they believed in some myth about the origins of the Messiah, which is quite, quite commonplace amongst uh, some rabbinic teachings, which is clearly contrary to Scripture. The Old Testament tells us where the Messiah was born, the house of David in Bethlehem. And then Jesus does something. He he only does three times in this gospel. He proclaims in a heralding type way. Like, this is a strong language. Jesus proclaimed. Happens here. Happens in verse 37. And in chapter 12, verse 44. John also proclaims in one fifteen. Same word used there. But he is proclaiming. So so what is happening? Discussion has ended. (laughs) Discussion has ended. Jesus is heralding out the fact and he's making an announcement. He affirms that they, yeah, you know where I'm from geographically. But then he tells them they don't really know who he is. You see, they're at this feast celebrating the one true God who provides all things. And Jesus insults them by saying, you actually don't know God. You're blinded by your traditions by your legalism by your cold hearts because there's a real irony in this the one you're rejecting me is the sent one from the one and only true God And then some in this crowd, in the Jerusalem crowd, say, we are going to seek to arrest him. <laughs> Is it God's time? No. This hour has not yet come. Just as Jesus' time was not determined by his mother in Cana, by his brothers in the start of chapter 7 here. So his hour was certainly not decided by a mob of hysteria. His time was in the hands of God. This is so true, isn't it? As followers of Christ and as unbelievers, our times are in the hands of God. Our time is in the hands of God. The days are ordained by the Sovereign Lord of the universe. Read Psalm 139, Hebrews 9. God has a plan for each one of you. Take courage because his spirit dwells within you to, to work out that plan. If you're a follower of his. You see, Jesus states that time has not yet come therefore the plans of man here are thwarted yet again by the sovereign plans of God. The leaders would get their wish, six months' time, but only when God determined that Christ would be crucified. You read that in Acts chapter 4. That Christ was crucified by the predetermined will of God. So we have two responses here of the crowd. Some want to arrest him, Yet others believe. Others believe. They recognize that the signs that Jesus was doing was pointing to him as Messiah. So what about you? You've seen the presentation of Christ here today. His claims are exclusive. Only he provides salvation. Through repentance of your sin and faith in the fact that He is the Messiah and the Lord of the universe. Do you have that certainty today? I trust you do. And for the followers of Christ amongst us here, take great courage today that your time is in God's hands, that He has. A plan. Ask him afresh each day to renew your faith and trust in his plan for your life. Trust him wholeheartedly. Follow him and serve him. He is the best of masters to serve. I asked the music team to come up now and